Hello there, and welcome to Fuzz on Film. I'm Drew, and joined today by Scott. Hello. And Craig. Hello. Okay, uh, now, there's not always a lot of planning goes into why we do a particular topic at any given time. This certainly is also the case this month where we're doing sports again, which is weird given only one of us is actually any sort of regular committed sports fan. So, you know, we're smart like that. Um, <laughs> but sports it is for reasons we can't adequately explain. The sports in this case will be baseball, alpine skiing, mixed martial arts, basketball, Formula One again, and in the case of the Oliver Stone film, I'm going to go with cocaine. Is cocaine a sport? <laughs> if not a sport, certainly an art form, yes. <laughs> yes. He claims to be off the, the coke by then, but mm, I have my doubts, but, but we'll get there. <laughs> I don't think his editor was, but... <laughs> uh, certainly we're going to begin with skiing, which is a sport... I guess yes, it's the, the best the, one too you're getting great. The, <laughs> the act of going down snow on a couple of bits of wood. The debut feature of director Michael Ritchie, 1969's Downhill Racer, sees Robert Redford play David Chapelet, a largely unknown yet naturally gifted and ambitious alpine skier who finally has a chance to make his mark on the US national team when injury strikes the roster. Headed by coach Claire, Gene Hackman, the team are determined to shed their reputation as perennial underachievers on the global stage and take on the big boys of Europe on the slopes of Austria at a forthcoming event, uh, which I can't remember. Is it supposed to be the Winter Olympics? It is, yes. Right, um, okay. It does actually mention that it was made with the so with the help of the Winter Olympic or the Olympic Association yeah. at some point. Yeah, case. that's right. I just couldn't remember if it was actually specifically stated in the film that that's what it was supposed to be, because no one seems to mention, hey, isn't it great we're at the Olympics? Never mind. Chapel- well, they do. They do mention the Olympics. Do they? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, must I can have understand tu- why you missed it. Yes, I must have tuned out at that point. Uh, Chapelet does little to endear himself to his teammates, not that he pretends to have designs on doing so, just one eye on individual achievement and the other, more often than not, focus largely on the many fine-looking women at the periphery of their winter sport. It's an attitude that frustrates Claire, and it is this emotional fulcrum on which the often unbearable tension and exquisite drama of downhill racer hinges. <laughs> or at least it does in the Craig cut, I was imagining, half an hour into the runtime, and then really anticipating at the hour mark, and then scratching my head about at 90 minutes <laughs> and then lamenting the absolute absence of 10 minutes later as the credits rolled. Yes, folks, the Craig cut of Downhill Racer is a thing of wonder and much more in keeping with the expectations raised for me by someone who now finds their contact details conveniently lost from my phone. <laughs> who dis? It's the guy you owe an hour and 40 plus change. The reality of Downhill Racer as it presents itself is quite baffling, especially considering the near-universal critical acclaim lauded upon it. And I'd love to at least explain the plot a little further, only there isn't much more to say. Chaplet races, gets better, irritates his teammates, chases an entirely underutilised Camilla Sparve, who plays Carol, the PA of a renowned ski manufacturer, and repeat, until eventually the movie concludes with Chaplet winning the big race, not by being the best in the field, but by watching the best in the field take a dry bath a couple of hundred yards from the finish line. Not dramatic enough to be a drama, not abstract enough to be performance art, Downhill Racer just kind of (laughs) is... 
Granted, a 32-year-old Robert Redford is astonishing to look at, particularly in a roll-neck sweater, but he's also an entirely unlikable presence who isn't held accountable for his attitude in any respect whatsoever, besides perhaps being blown off by Carol, which upsets him for all of five minutes before he's off eyeing up his next conquest. This is a strange beast, and I'm very unhappy because on paper I'm supposed to love it. Release the Craig cut! (laughs) Yeah, um... It's not good, is it? Although, um, well, everybody Hoover, seems to think it is. Well, yes, that's what I was going to say, Craig. It's it was incredibly well regarded at the time. It's in the Criterion Collection, although you know mm. that on its own is is not a um, it's not a mark of quality as we've discussed in the past. Um, although you know, no monkeys in this one, which is to its detriment. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's very well regarded. It's in the Criterion Collections because um, considered as great sports movie, and it's absolute gash. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'd even heard of this film before you mentioned it for this, and I went to this very very cold. And it starts off with some shots of people skiing, I should imagine, although not for the first time. Some <laughs> strong very, start. <laughs> yeah. Some very obviously badly sped up footage. Yeah, that just sticks out like a sore thumb. To, to presumably fake the the idea of them going faster than they actually are, but it yeah. looks like sped up footage because it's sped up footage. It's, it's either sped, it's either sped up or under cranked. I can't tell which, but it's properly, properly jarring. Yeah, it's, it's amateur error, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but start off with that, and but then what got me, and I really I knew nothing about the film at all, and it's it's from the sixties. And it's got sixties era spy thriller music at the start. I thought, oh, this is maybe not what I think it is. Maybe it's like the CIA recruiting a skier because he's going to be in Eastern Europe or, or the Soviet Union or something. Like, oh, it's not. It's a spy film. Oh, no, no. Just spy music for some reason and use like, at least the first half of the film quite a lot. Why is that there? That is completely inappropriate. <laughs> I love it. Spy, spy music. Not not a section that had its own divider in HMV, but we all know what you mean. Yes, I'm sure you do, because you, you've seen spy films before. Um, and so that kind of set me off in the wrong foot to begin with. Because that music was so obvious, and it, it carries so much significance, mm. that kind of music. So I thought, oh, right. And, the, and immediately it lends itself to the, the suggestion of intrigue or suspense, certainly. Yes, exactly. Um, and so I had my own cut in my head that I'd invented a better film within the first 30 seconds, where, you know, it was a Cold War spy thriller, <laughs> a literal Cold War spy thriller, if you will. And I know you won't, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> and then it gets on, oh, it's this absolute pillock who I don't believe cares about skiing or possibly cares about anything at all for the whole runtime of the film. Because, uh, yeah, Chaplin, he's, he's a git. He's not likeable. He's not interesting. He And I don't I just don't believe for the entire film that he cares about skiing at all. And then you have his other teammates who are definitely there. <laughs> I mean, there's the guy he's racing and puts into a wall near the end and the guy ends up um, in a hospital after a crash he's got a face and <laughs> there's probably some hair near that face and that's about it I mean we're supposed to care about what happened he's completely anonymous as is 
almost everybody in it. Imagine, right, you've touched on a really interesting bit there, Drew, because I, I, I sort of perked up a little bit at the end where he's having, he, he goes off on that race um, with his roommate, doesn't he? Uh, much to the annoyance of uh, Claire, they, they set off in this sort of like, oh, I suppose it's ostensibly good-natured, but it's obviously hyper-competitive. He and his, uh, yeah. his teammate, who he shares a room with off in this race, and then the bit where he, yeah, his, his mate basically barrels into a brick wall. Now, um, you know, I I know enough about the Kennedys to know that that's bad news uh, if you ski into the side <laughs> of something. Um, I thought, oh, wait a minute, here comes a bit of character depth. He's just killed that guy, and he's going to just not care. And that's all of a sudden, I'm going to have like a really deep and intimate handle on who Chaplet is. Nah, guy's totally fine. Uh, it gets laughed off, and there's no consequence whatsoever. And yeah, that's it's, that. It's unrelated to his actual accident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you've got. Um, a completely squandered Gene Hackman, which is a crime in itself, yeah. who gets the, the sort of obligatory for these types of films, coach speech. One hour and 20 minutes into the film, I took a note of it, one hour and 20 minutes into this film, he gets his first coach speech, you know, despite effectively not being in the rest of the film at all and certainly not doing any coaching. Mm. <laughs> and then, so you've got all this happening. I don't believe anybody cares about it, especially not the main character. You've got the the weird... The misleading music then like weird but it's like this completely clueless female reporter who apparently has no idea about skiing and is also unaware that the girls also ski but she wouldn't want to do that herself so you know yeah. it, it's, it's not to be countenanced that's a really curious character <laughs> yeah and then the other thing that kind of threw me in, and I know this doesn't actually matter but it, it's to do with sound again I just found it odd I mean, I know, maybe you two have done it as well, because we didn't have a, a great many choices in television channels when we were wee, but I've seen quite a lot of skiing in my life because my dad used to watch Gotta love Pop Goes Back. It is a great tune. But yeah, so I guess we all, at least when we were wee, were watching quite a lot of skiing and the Winter Olympics as well. And do you know what this film needs? Because it's one sound I associate entirely with skiing, and maybe it just wasn't a thing by the time this film was made. But is it more cowbell? It needs more cowbell. <laughs> exactly the word took out of my mouth, Scott. This film needs more cowbell because every time I've ever seen um, downhill racing, there's always these um, mm-hmm. cowbells being sounded by the crowd, <laughs> and there's not one of them in this film, and it was weird. <laughs> that more than anything else was the, the strangest thing about this film. Thinking a weird note to make, I know, but um, you had to try and find something interesting to say about this film because the film itself yeah. has nothing. Well, as usual, Drew, you've cut straight to the heart of the thing. Now <laughs> you're going to want more cowbell. It's going to be difficult for Scott to follow this up with any kind of insight. <laughs> I <laughs> uh, don't think I've got anything much more to add. It's, just, it's, a, it's a strange film. I didn't, I didn't actively hate it, but it wasn't offensive enough to, to get me into like, a vitriol mode. But yeah, mm. it's just like it's a character study that doesn't have any characters in it. I was, yeah, I was exactly. waiting to get some kind of insight into either Gene Hackman's character or, or anyone any character. To be honest, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it just it just goes on for a while and then it ends. It's like okay, I mean, was was it marketed just being? exciting footage of 
skiing downhill, which I guess might not have been so much of a thing from a, in 69, but was that pulling the wool over people's eyes? This, um, the overcranked uh, down, downhill racing uh, style, uh, which I suppose might have been technically difficult to pull off, but the rest of the film, no, it, 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 there was just nothing to get your teeth into at all in it, and uh, nothing really of any interest. It, it occupied the time, um, but not particularly well. Um, it was there. I mean, even given for the kind of slower pace of the era, it just it, it just doesn't have anything to do. Um, there's, it, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's just a, it's just a very confusing experience. I just don't understand what the point of it was, and I don't understand why there's no actual plot or character development mm. or character study <laughs> or anything in it. It was. It, I mean, generally speaking, it's well enough acted and well enough produced. It's just they don't have anything to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's just yeah, bizarrely it's, it's, oh, a bizarre film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't hate this film, Scott. I mean, I have certainly hated other films we've talked about in the past, but no, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I kind of wish that I did. You know, I wish I sort of felt anything beyond <laughs> yes. boredom about this film. I, I don't hate it. I'm just baffled by it. Yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah, it's, it's and super failed. frustrating because I can think of any number of things that I I would do with that script, or you know do with those characters to actually make it interesting and engaging. I feel like the least amount of effort could potentially make it an incredibly interesting film because it is it is well acted. It's just a weird blank canvas that exists yeah. out on their on its own as apparently a fully formed film that lots of people really highly regard. <laughs> it's um it's well acted, but it's why acted? Why bother? Yes. The nail right on the head. Yes. Um so we're going to move on then, um, jumping quite a few years, and nearly three decades in fact, to a film in which, well, there's certainly a lot happening. <laughs> Whether any of it is worth happening, well, perhaps Scott can tell us um, when he tells us um, any given cocaine. I mean, Sunday, any given Sunday, Scott. Yes, uh, Oliver Stone's had a, let's politely say, interesting career, <laughs> uh, full of interesting choices and statements, particularly in his latest interesting role as a Putin apologist um, so it's kind of strange then to go back and watch him tell a story like, like this which visual flair and talent aside is a relatively standard sporting story uh, set in the certainly not the national American Football League um, here we have Alistair Pacino's Tony D'Amato playing the venerated coach of the not Miami Dolphins uh, but it seems that the glory days for both him and the team are in the rearview mirror there's pressure from the club's owner Cameron Diaz's Christine Pagnati to change things up but change comes anyway when an injury to Dennis Quaid's Jack Cap Rooney, longtime starting quarterback, and his second string re- replacement sees the third stringer, Jamie Foxx's Steeman Willie Beeman, thrust into the limelight. Underprepared and unused to the situation, Beeman initially stumbles but soon proves his chops and with the team starting to pick up wins. The success and adulation quickly goes to Beeman's head and he butts heads with the rest of the team's larger-than-life characters and team cohesion evaporates. D'Amato would, uh, wants to bring Rooney back to stabilise the ship, but Christina would rather keep the wagon hitched to the media darling Beeman, up to the point of encouraging James Woods' Dr Harvey Mandrake to interpret the medical results in a way that more benefits the team. Uh, there's a number of other subplots, tensions and character interactions that I'll leave to either Wikipedia summaries or the viewer, uh, because it's worth taking a look at this film if you've not done so already. There's an impressive array of talent in front and behind the character on this production that comes across as a highly kinetic, punchy skim across a season of on-field action uh, with character interactions and rivalries. It's an entertaining watch. Um, I could argue it's fallen foul to the usual mathematics of many characters and a limited, well, limited-ish 
ish runtime. And so it's not much more than scratching the surface of everyone, um, both arguably even Pacino and Fox being underserved. But it's bombing along so fast it's hard to notice until the credits roll. It's by no means a story you haven't heard before, but it's a solid enough basis to bounce some flamboyant characters on, solid performances off, and that's good enough for me. The first time I watched this, uh, which is quite a while ago, and I'm pretty sure that I borrowed or possibly told to borrow the DVD from Craig back in the day, I felt largely like you did, Scott. I would say we're fairly in line there. I should say, this is the first time I've watched it to my understanding or or recollection. um, I was quite looking forward to you listening because that's largely how I felt about it. This time around, not that I entirely didn't enjoy it. There are moments... And there are certainly good performances in there, and that's that's quite a bit to keep it going. Mm. But there are there are so many problems with this, and some of them aren't so much actually to do with the film. It's more that where we are now, knowing what we know now, it just some of it seems so much more egregious than it might have done at the time. Yeah, it's very Not much a product of its time. I didn't, yeah, I didn't get into that. There's a lot of there's some things that would very clearly be described as problematic in today's context. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, which ought yeah. to have been then, but um, certainly now, post the chronic traumatic encephalopathy issues and the the fact that the NFL has been exposed, she's not one of the most reprehensible sporting organisations on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> um, that some of this, you know, just it it really seems bad. I mean. Yeah, again, bad enough at the time, but now when you see the Carter Sharks heroic moment, it's like, yeah, no, mm. that's just, that's criminal. All of them should be thoroughly condemned rather than looking like it's some sort of heroic moment and wanted to hang on to his million dollar paycheck and whatnot. I don't know if that was ever really cast as heroic, though. That seemed to smack of desperation on his part and, like, outright malice on the uh, club owner's part, though. Uh, yeah, I think he, James uh, Woods. Uh, uh, yeah, well, obviously, James Woods is bad in everything. Uh, he's yes, clearly just James an, Woods. He's, he's an evil performance. But yeah, I don't think heroic would be quite the right yeah. cast of that. But then, uh, too, like, but um, there's other stuff that I pretty certain I didn't at least think about at the time and whether I would have if I'd seen it, if, uh, I don't know. I know what's like, but things like Dennis Quaid's, um, this is weird, Dennis Quaid is one of only two even vaguely sympathetic characters in this film, which is <laughs> interesting. Uh, but uh, his absolute arsehole of a wife hmm. telling him, like, basically, I think I'm going to get killed doing this. I want to give up. No, no, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> and Al Pacino effectively bullying him into returning despite the fact he's talking of pain and losing memory. Yeah. No incredible warning signs. Yeah, it's it's okay, but but it's like the the eyeball scene, the, the notorious eyeball scene, which I believe wasn't in the theatrical version. But that's an addition where somehow somebody's eye gets ripped out in a cartoon manner, and then as if that wasn't bad enough, the ridiculous comedy take that's shown from when Al Pacino sees it. It's we're talking. Um, double taking pigeons quality here. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. It's that bad. So, like, watching this film, it's more just the fact that I don't think I'd realised before that so few of the characters have any morals at all, which I mean, may well be a part of it, I get, but it's like, the only even vaguely moral character is Matthew Medine, and then for some reason they undercut that, or at least it suggested that he's decided, oh, I'll just give this guy an injection because despite having put his career on the line before that to to make sure he got told the truth, that was a weird choice. And it's a film full of weird choices and some stupid lines, which I don't know whether there's a line there in particular. 
I don't know if it's a stupid line or made a line to make Jamie Foxx look stupid, but I know there's that section near the end where there's lots and lots of footage of Ben Hur. Yeah. And when Jamie Foxx turns up Al Pacino's house and he sees Ben Hur on the TV and they're it's during the chariot race, and he goes, Oh, the gladiators of their time. <laughs> really? I'm pretty sure the gladiators of their time were gladiators, given the time that I was. And uh, yeah, that's not really uh, the point, but. I suppose what they did nail particularly well, though, in the dialogue was the idiocy of all sporting commentators ever with such great lines as, he's got genius ankles, and (laughs) this is where the famous rubber meets the famous road. (laughs) It's an absolutely perfect encapsulation of how dumb most sports commentators are. I'm just, uh, I just forgot about your thing for gladiators, man. Drew and his gladiators. (laughs) I mean, it was a good TV uh, show, but uh, time's yeah. long I was, gone. I was going to say, I, I had been singing the Gladiators theme tune there and I realised that I had my mic muted. So, sorry you missed <laughs> that comedy gold. Yeah. Last thing I'll say about this, though, this is an, an LL Cool J film in which mm. sharks are involved. Um, and it's not the one in which he killed a shark with an oven. And that's by far the better film, despite <laughs> that. So, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea for the win. Yeah. I have. I didn't. I didn't rewatch this. I haven't seen any given Sunday since uh, I bought the DVD. I hadn't seen it in the theatre. I bought the DVD sight unseen because it's got Al Pacino in it. Uh, at a time when simply having enough money meant buying DVDs was a thing, and um, people, other people saying this was quite a good film, was enough justification to part with cash for them. Uh, and I quite enjoyed it then. And I'm happy for it to remain that way in my memory. <laughs> I remember, I remember sort of random. I, I remember the whole sort of the the typical Oliver Stone mixed film stock thing, and like you know, someone would someone would tackle someone in the field, and there would be a random cut to like a thunderstorm or something like that. And I remember the eyeball thing, um, and that's that. Yeah, it's. Um it's a strangely edited film, certainly too. It, it'll like change the film stock. It'll randomly go to black and white. At some point, you're suddenly inside of a music video. Yeah, it's point to see a music video be filmed. But at some points, it's actually inside a music video. Then, hmm. towards the end, there's weird bits where there are there's like the time, the clock overlaid on bits of the non-broadcast mm. footage. It's a strange film. Yeah, but that was a very Oliver Stone thing to do at the time. Uh, like, when I think about this and U-Turn, which I know, I think is pretty much universally hated, but I still really like, uh, and Natural Born Killers, uh, they all have a very similar mixed mixed media, mixed film stock kind of style. It was really into just randomly chucking stuff in there there's a there's a great deal of uh tony scott in in the editing as well i think mm. uh stylistically yeah. but uh yeah Not quite kinetic but yeah there's a, yeah there's a chunk of that in there yeah yeah it's like tony scott without the action basically but um i remember yep. really liking any given sunday and it was my thorough intention if i had had time to uh, uh prioritize revisiting that for our discussion tonight alas i did not have time and i will probably never get around to watching it <laughs> again i can't imagine it getting back to the top of that list but you never know you never know uh, i mean it's not one of those films where i've enjoyed it once and gone back and like been hugely disappointed or questioning my earlier younger self hmm. hugely it's just this time it's like it didn't do a lot of me and i was much more critical of the the more the meta of it i guess hmm. and around like 
how badly these players are treated and things. Do you know the other thing I remember, actually, before we go on to whatever the next uh, movie is, I remember that Jamie Foxx music video thing, the Willie... It was Jamie Foxx's Willie Beeman, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, do I remember this lyric correctly? Because this is the only thing I think I can remember other than those parts I mentioned. My name is Willie Beeman. I got the chicks. Creamin. That's right, yeah. That's yeah. correct, yes. Yeah. Four stars. <laughs> Shakespearean Craig. Absolutely. Probably best to move on. Shall we move on then to Warrior? Yeah. Yes. Um... Warrior, which is a mixed martial arts film, uh, we have in fact covered one other mixed martial arts film in our time as Fuzz and Film, and that was really, really weirdly a David Mamet film, which <laughs> I still can't quite get my head around. <laughs> David Mamet in the octagon! <laughs> this one, at least, is a little more conventional. <laughs> Uh, I imagine it's unintentional, Scott can correct me otherwise, but Mixed Martial Arts Film Warrior is the first of two Gavin O'Connor films on our roster tonight. This first sees Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton as two estranged brothers who, after decades, are reunited when they both enter a high-value winner-takes-all MMA tournament in Atlantic City. The lead-up to this tournament, which, by the way, despite having a $5 million purse, seems to be arranged on an entirely last-minute ad hoc basis, but, you know, don't think about it, MK, fills us in on the brothers. Tommy, Hardy, and his mother left their alcoholic and abusive father when he was a teenager and moved to the West Coast, and he largely disappeared. Then, one day, he turns up on his father's doorstep, being elusive about his past, and asks him to help him train for this Sparta tournament training being the one thing he believes his father was any good at. Meanwhile, his elder brother, Brendan Edgerton, lives a happy life with his wife and two daughters, and having had a not enormously successful UFC career, is now a high school physics teacher. But financial concerns leave him needing to return to the ring, something which initially gets him suspended from school, making his situation worse. He therefore doubles down on his MMA training, like a smart man, and by narrative luck, ends up being a late-minute replacement for Sparta. Convenient. Tommy, Brendan and Paddy, their father, cross paths at the tournament, with Paddy seeking absolution and his sons uninterested in same. Though something of a rapprochement is growing by the film's finale, which, in a narrative that will have surprised nobody whatsoever, sees the brothers meet in the tournament final. Unlike any given Sunday or downhill racer, it's easy to find someone to root for here, it's Brendan, obviously. Though I wonder if it's just from being outside of the United States that I so readily see the true enemy within the film, which is the despicable US healthcare system. As much of Tommy's bitterness stems from the horrible death his mother suffered because she didn't have health insurance, and Brendan is risking his well-being in the cage because he can't pay the third mortgage he had to take out to pay for his infant daughter's heart surgery. <laughs> but I'll stop myself there, otherwise I'll be here all night. Very much changing the subject then. I can't remember when the whole mumbling Tom Hardy thing took hold, <laughs> so I'm not sure if this film from 2011 started it or perpetuated it, but given the very meta feel of it, I'm going for the latter. Of all the actors you could cast to play the father of someone with a reputation for mumbling performances, is there anyone more apt than Nick? <laughs> what was that? Could you repeat that line, please? Nolte. It strikes me as very, <laughs> very annoying. <laughs> Hey. 
Hey, I could be wrong. So I mean, I could be wrong. Where I'm sure I'm not wrong is in thinking that Gavin O'Connor is a fan of the Rocky films, as there are only many, many clues throughout Warrior to suggest this. <laughs> Despite playing into Hardy's mumblecore delivery by having one car to refer to him as Rocky, Tommy is clearly even Drago, with his taciturn demeanour and brutal demolition of opponents. Though that actually veers towards Bolo Young and Bloodsport territory. And Brendan, the unfancied late challenger with his incredible ability to take a pounding and still emerge victorious, is Balboa. I promise you that neither of these comparisons is even the most minor of stretches. Uh, not that this is a criticism, it just requires comment. As a whole, the film is pretty enjoyable, though undeniably cliched and emotionally manipulative. Edgerton's sympathetic Brendan is the heart of the film, though Tommy earns some sympathy himself, especially as his backstory is teased out. Paddy, on the other hand, while a pretty good and even occasionally coherent performance from Nolte, I even made out quite a few of his lines, um, <laughs> is a wife-beater and can go to hell, though O'Connor does offer him the least redemption. Where it suffers most for me is the action, though it's hardly different from any other films in the genre. Hardy, who made this around the same time as he was portraying Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, is an absolute unit, and there are some <laughs> visceral and brutal shots on display, with Edgerton getting his fair share too. But the editing and camera work get in the way after a while. I know that it's necessary, as the fights aren't real and the edits must sell contact, or at least hide the lack thereof, but the action is shown in a way that the actual sport absolutely isn't. It might be nice to stay on one shot long enough to see some actual technique. That may have been an unrealistic request, though my other, which is to entirely remove the amateur hour Moby Dick audiobook device that permeates the film is more reasonable. However, I still enjoyed Warrior quite a lot, and unlike the superior Batman-related fighting film from just the year before this, The Fighter, you at least don't have to contend with the director being a scumbag. Yay! <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, don't think I've got a great deal more to add there. Um, I, I really enjoyed Warrior. Um, I, I don't think it will trouble anyone's uh, list of classic films or anything like that, uh, but it's a solidly enjoyable film. Um Tom Hardy's very good in it, but I thought if, if, given the way his character's written, he portrays that really well. Um, he does a great job of kind of eking out a lot of sympathy in the end for a character mm-hmm. that is, you know, initially um, so standoffish that you can't really seem to get any kind of hook into him. But no, that, that, yeah. that, it, it takes a while, but he gets there, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a good character arc for a film. I think it, it pulls it through pretty well, and the, the kind of conflict with the, his brother, uh, Edgerton's character, kind of works very well. Edgerton's obviously more of an everyman. It's easier to get into his struggles. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to be a monster not to be on his side, uh, given what's happened to him. Um, he's very much written up as the punch bag <laughs> before he gets his own punches in. Um, but yeah, the, the, that whole conflict kind of works out quite well. <laughs> Arguably, the Nick Nolte father angle is perhaps a bridge too far. It, it maybe just didn't need that leg of drama to, to want. It's it's the third leg. It is not required. Um, uh, but uh, it somehow it managed to pull it, pull it off well enough that, that it's not really a huge issue. Um, and it's a solid performance from Nolte as well. So, yeah, all of it seems to work quite well. The, the fighting's you know, properly meaty where it needs to be. So I can give it away with a lot of that, given that it's not sort of... 
it's not explicitly a martial arts movie or anything like that. It's, it's a, I think it blends the, the the kind of conceits needed to do make that kind of work in a dramatic sense as well, rather than just being a kind of a you know a Van Damme film or anything like that. <laughs> so um, yeah, it works. It's a, it's a good blend of action and drama. It works pretty well. Um, if you've any interest, certainly if you're interested in action films and with any kind of slightly more complicated characters, then this works pretty well. Um, I would recommend it to anyone who's in the market for that kind of thing. Yeah, there's not an awful lot to dislike in here. Um, but it's all a solid film, uh, as I say. Not going to trouble anyone's best uh, best of films lists. I'm probably never going to watch this again, but quite enjoyed my time with it. So yeah, give it a go. Yeah, yeah, solid's the word. It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not remarkable. It's competently made. It's entertaining. Right, solid. That that's fine. Sometimes that's yeah. all you want. Yeah, I think it's about the best this kind of thing can be done. Yeah. Probably is. <laughs> <Don't>, it's <laughs> like uh, uh, there are no surprises in this film. Everything's fairly perfunctory from a, a plotting and a, a script point of view. Mm-hmm. Probably fair to say that it's elevated somewhat by the performances. I just I don't know that Joel Edgerton's ever been bad in anything. Tom Hardy, I can take or leave a lot of the time, but I think he serves his purpose pretty well in this film. A couple of bits that I don't buy. I don't buy that Joel Edgerton uh, is the winner of this tournament. Like you say, Drew, he's basically, uh, his skill seems to be as a bullet sponge. Um, I just, I don't buy that somehow he's able to take that beating from these people, including his brother uh, and the big Russian fella whose name I forget. Even when you get to his brother, really, Harvey's a unit here. Because I saw how big he was, his baby's huge. Um, Yeah. But that, yeah, that Russian guy was a monster. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, that big Russian fella being Kurt Angle, who's like an American um, gold medalist um, and and is portrayed like pro wrestling as being like the ultimate all American badass and uh, shows up here as a Russian, obviously. Yeah, exactly. I watched the Soviet flags for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I went through a period of watching UFC for a bit and stuff. I saw some Kurt Angle fights. He is a badass. As you <laughs> as you say, it's quite believable him strolling into the octagon and smashing whoever's there and walking out again in five yeah. seconds flat. Same with Hardy. I don't know, like in terms of physique and stuff. Yeah, he's he's big. He's not as big as Kurt Angle, but like the the temperament and his performance. I like. I buy him just walking in and devastating yeah. everything inside the ring within five seconds, and then walking back out again to absolutely no fanfare, or mm. you know, as though there were no fanfare. I get that. I don't buy Joel Edgerton surviving both of those yeah. when every other fighter gets absolutely devastated by them within seconds. I, I didn't buy that. The one I other scene, that, but I wanted him to because I'm I really engaged with Joel Edgerton. So oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, Joel, I don't believe a stall, but I want you to win. Joel Edgerton's never done a, a bum day's work in his life. I don't think. I, I haven't seen the Joel Edgerton performance that I don't like yet. Even in the sort of the Thing remake, he's far better than he has any right to be. Uh, he's certainly I, better than most other people around him. Oh yeah, I think Joel Edgerton's one of those people who's easily got to be like pound for pound. He's got to be right up there in the top five actors in terms of like best value for money. When I imagine what this guy's probably getting paid for a performance, and I can't think of a film that I've seen him in where there's anyone necessarily better than him. Um, yeah, he's done a lot of bad films, like you know, for instance, like Animal Kingdom or. Um, Exodus, God and Kings, or one of the Star Wars films, but um, yeah. he's always good. Yeah, you know, he's, out, he's absolutely he's, he's always valued for money. I also don't buy the scene where Nick Nolte uh, goes back on the sauce. Um, that was a bridge too far for Nolte as an actor. And once in my life, after I first moved down here and I was on a night out in Liverpool, 
I have actually been drunk enough that there are parts of the night I don't remember. I've never been drunk enough to confuse myself with Ahab. <laughs> um, and Nolte doesn't quite pull that scene off, I don't think. But bless him, yeah. he gives it a good punt. Um, I just, that, that whole Moby Dick thing in there was just kind of an irritation from the start. It's like, oh, th- this is subtle. and Oh, it's not yeah. going away. Oh, che- good. It's Chekhov's dick. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I, I kind of, I enjoyed this film far more than I expected. Uh, I think I went in expecting absolutely nothing, uh, and it performed well above that. I can't imagine this kind of story being made again any better. Uh, and I'm kind of happy to leave it at that. I'll probably never watch it again, but I'm definitely not disappointed that I did. I really enjoyed my time with it, uh, and that's great. Thank you very much. Uh, see you later. Okay, uh, we've been in the realms of the entirely fictional thus far. We're going to move on to something at least based, and, you know, the usual caveats around that, based on a true story with 42. Craig, Tell us about that, please. (laughs) You know what the tale of an African-American sporting legend who smashed race barriers at huge personal cost needs? A middle-aged white guy to direct it and a (laughs) PG-13 certificate. So, Jackie Robinson is without doubt one of the greatest figures in sporting history. I had a kind of induction into baseball back in the summer of 1999 as I recall Uh, but I've never been a huge sporting fan generally speaking. Um, I certainly knew who Jackie Robinson was though the first black man to transcend the Negro Leagues to play Major League Baseball at a time where lynching was still practiced and looking the wrong random redneck in the eye was basically a death sentence. Nowadays, we have the police to thank for carrying out those atrocities. But in post-war US, the greatest distance between two points was the crowd's love for baseball and their hatred of people of colour. The late Chadwick Boseman here plays Robinson just a year before he'd go on to portray another cultural icon as James Brown in Get On Up, another film that was criminally under my radar. Uh, And I have to say, I am completely unfamiliar with Boseman's work outside of the Marvel Universe, a state of affairs I shall have to correct on the evidence of his performance here, which is in spite of a mostly perfunctory script from director Brian Helgeland, really, really good. Clearly sanitised to within an inch of its certificate, 42 couldn't possibly hope to convey the true struggle Robinson and those who followed him faced. And if Helgeland's words and directions set up a few too many manipulative, saccharine moments, it is Bozeman who carries them through convincingly in a quietly dignified, though nonetheless powerful, performance. Somewhat predictably, Nicole Bihari has given very little to do as Jackie's wife Rachel and I would have liked to have spent a lot more time around their dinner table rather than out at the ball game as I suspect the true power in Robinson's tale would be more likely found in the dynamics of their relationship. If behind every great man there is a strong woman then Rachel Robinson must have been an absolute powerhouse to her husband. Most surprising, and testimony to how far under my radar this movie has been, it was the presence of one Harrison Ford Esquire which threw me for a loop. (laughs) Not least of all, because he brought his acting clothes today. (laughs) If Ford's portrayal of Branch Rickey is perhaps a little cartoonish at times, it's nonetheless the most pleasant surprise of the movie for me, and it makes me wish he did more of this kind of thing, rather than, I don't know, endangering everyone by flying his crop duster or whatever the f*** 
It is incredibly badly. <laughs> 42 is entirely serviceable and arguably a good deal more enjoyable than it probably ought to be. There is the potential here for an incredibly powerful and resonant drama, particularly in today's cultural money, were it not so largely sanitised to the point where one wonders what exactly Helgeland wanted to achieve. A profanity spouting Alan Tudyk aside, this is a Sunday afternoon movie, no more, no less. It's not going to give you any real insight into Jackie Robinson's struggle, but it is entirely passable and a film I will never visit again. Yeah, it's um, it's enjoyable. It's all it needs an edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's to Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. Apart from that one Alan Tudyk, but you mentioned Craig, it needs it needs grit to to make a stronger message. I feel. Yeah, it's a weird thing that whole Alan Tudyk. Uh, I don't know what to make of that because it feels like that is. That could have been the tipping point into the film this ought to have been, but also if you're going to be so sanitised and bland throughout the rest of the movie, then why have that in there in the first place? Yeah. It's, it's, a, like- we- it's a weird concession to the, you know, it's a, it's a weird concession to the sort of disgusting, you know, face of, of racism. I, would, <laughs> I was going to say then, but let's be honest, now, um, mm. that it just it's kind of out of whack with the rest of the picture yeah it's um there's a few times the the film faints towards going deeper into something like that like mm. for instance the the team bus turned up at that philadelphia hotel yeah and then we turned away and then it's like oh i guess that was no big deal then and it's frustrating that the film reminds me a bit um of green book um mm. A yeah. film I regret being quite so effusive about at the time, but it, it said there's shades of that in there, although this doesn't quite have the same white saviour narrative. People use the word nowadays ally a lot. Um, mm. And I think people self-apply that, and what they generally mean is not a, being a dick, which is what just people should be by default anyway. But when you have people of a certain colour suppressed, then you do actually need actual allies, people who are in a position of influence and power to help effect change. So that's what Harrison Force Carter is doing here. How accurate that is to the real person and his real motives, I don't know. I don't know enough about the story. But that role feels a bit different in this film from Green Book. And that's actually a really great role from Harrison Ford. I was quite amused to see him pop up here, given that just last week you were suggesting we do sort of the the less bombastic Harrison Ford roles mm. um, as a topic. It's quite interesting to see him pop up here. It's, I've seen him a couple of times in the last few years, so sort of where he's remembered to act, even in stuff that's, <laughs> you know, effectively fluff like Morning Glory. And then this is a, another example. So he's really fun in that. Your man, Boseman, he's great. I just kind of... And you can just see that the, the, the injustice plays so well in that character. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of... I feel he's got the... Oh, he had the the ability to to do really well in a really sort of deep take on this type of thing, rather than this sort of kind of surface level, all rough edges filed off take on it. Um, this very very safe take. I would have liked to have seen him get his teeth and something to get his teeth more into. Which I and like he's uh, sort of changing topics like here, but uh, I would like to go and check out some of his other stuff because. The only other things I'd seen him in, apart from the Avengers stuff before this, was The Five Bloods, which is a very small role. Mm. I really want, I've been for a while, I wanted to check out Marshall. So I said I'd like to do go back and look at 
look at what else he's done. You have seen him something else, Craig, though, though I understand why you've forgotten it, because he's seen Gods of Egypt, which I fortunately dodged oh, this wow. <laughs> I'll understand from when you Scott talked about that, why you've forgotten that particular um, I have no idea gem. what you're talking about. I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that, that's the one. Things I've never heard of of some country in Africa, I believe it's called. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really solid film. I mean, the story's interesting. I knew a bit about Jackie Robinson, although what I particularly know Jackie Robinson from, of all things, is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, <laughs> that actually tells you a lot more about them. Uh, um, ben Sisko mentions them a few times, and there's a couple actual episodes dedicated to the character. And that's unexpected, but like started Deep Space Nine kind of went a bit deep into this character feel than the film about him actually did itself. <laughs> yeah, so it's a solid film, and it's an, an important film and like an important character, but it's just, it's weird that it's such a in many ways, anodyne take on it. It needs edge, it needs it needs vitriol. Yeah. It deserves vitriol. But the weird the weirdest thing for me is the introduction of um quite the barrage of epithets from Alan Turek because it's otherwise, like you say, it is so anodyne. And it feels like it was gonna push in a different direction but then chickened out. But yeah. really they kind of that's a really they needed to take that to back watch. out again. It's a really difficult scene to watch. So in some ways, it's effective, though, like horribly uncomfortable. Like you're meant to be. It's yes. Well, it's, it's probably the most like, e- probably the most effective scene in the film. Yeah, and it's kind like, of an it's, indication it's that, that scene in the film. Yeah, and you wish they had doubled down on that. I mean, I think to a yeah, great degree, the whole point of it being sanitized is baked into the script and baked into what Jackie had to do to fit into the, this world. And mm-hmm. that is the whole point. I mean, there's a whole scene where you know um, Harrison Ford with his acting pants on is <laughs> showing up to say, <laughs> "Look, they they will be mean to you, and mm. uh, you need to you need to have the courage to turn another cheek and all that kind of stuff." Yeah. So it, be good. It, so it's not like it's not unaware that it is kind of trying to sanitise itself to do that. Uh, But I I do agree, it could have done with a bit more soul-searching on, uh, as you say, a a dinner table scene where um, it it gets to a little bit more of what uh, Jackie's going through. And particularly, that's the kind of thing that you would want to talk about with your wife, which could have actually made this a little bit less of a sausage fest by giving her something to do. Um, Mm. Yeah, so... it, it, it tries to have its cake and eat it on that front as well. Um, yeah, to a degree, it is actually just um, planting its face into that cake. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> on, 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 overall, I, I did really like Forty Two. I would heartily recommend it to anyone. It's uh, it is a it is by all accounts a good film. Uh, with mm. it is a solid film with really mm. great performances in it, which makes it feel like a good film, even if it's maybe not yeah. actually qualifying as being a good film. So, uh, yeah, it is definitely yeah. something I, I would recommend to anyone. And yep. if you don't know familiarity with the story or or uh, baseball at all, it still kind of works really well, just that kind of story about racism and uh, how you might try and fit into to this world. Yeah, it's it's really solid. I really liked it. Um, I, mainly, I really liked... Um, Jared Bozeman, so yes, I, we, maybe we need to give his uh, works a bit more of a, a closer look, hmm. including revisiting Gods of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly acceptable if, as a viewer, you're willing to accept the truth that this has got hee haw to do with Jackie Robinson, uh, hmm. you know, and and the struggle the guy must have 
faced. So yeah, other you know if if you can set that aside, it's a perfectly yes. perfectly acceptable, perfectly enjoyable movie. It just it, probably doesn't do justice to its uh, source. Yeah, it, it's closer to a movie that is about baseball at the time of his ascension as opposed to being about him in particular yes uh, which mm. is um, a, a different way of looking at it i guess um i suspect it might be more interesting if it was more focused on the character but um as a kind of more historical document of the era um it, it kind of works in that regard um so yes um could have been more, much more interesting than it was could have had a lot as you say a lot more grit and edge to it but what we've got works well enough so Mm. Who's who's to complain? Well, us obviously. Well, us but. clearly for the last ten minutes, but <laughs> yes, it, at least something like him, but certainly something we would recommend watching. It's at least enough in, interesting enough for that. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to move on to our next Gavin O'Connor film, and Scott's going to tell us about The Way Back. Yes, in which Ben Affleck's Jack Cunningham is a just about functional alcoholic, uh, living alone and working in the construction industry, being scraped up off the floor of the local bar and deposited home every night for the cycle to continue. His family are concerned about him, including his separated wife, but Jack's not willing to confront his demons, just attempt to drown him in booze. He's given an unexpected reason to care about life when he's called on to step in to coach his old high school basketball team, which, after some soul-searching, he agrees to. Said team, the Bishop Hayes basketball men or something, um, are not very good and lose a lot and don't work together as a team. And, well, I'm sure you see where things are going with this. While Jack is putting the team on the winning path, reworking their playstyle to suit their strengths and ultimately challenging for the playoffs, it seems that he's also putting his life back on a winning path until past trauma resurfaces and knocks him back on his ass and into a bottle. Uh, perhaps the main deviation from formula in the way back is that it's not exactly presenting a simple character redemption arc and a happy ending uh, as much as the overbearingly smaltzy ending music would have it instead it's offering the possibility of a happy ending for both Jack and also his team uh, a lot of the story and the, the lot of the characters that we'll meet in the way back will have some degree of familiarity to anyone who's been watching films for any length of time uh, but that's not to say that the classics don't continue to work uh, the kids prove to be a fairly endearing bunch and while the being whipped into shape sequence isn't winning any originality awards it's a fun stretch bookended by a pretty solid performance from Batman as a believably traumatised man incapable of or unwilling to deal with his grief I don't think I've got a lot more to say about the way back other than perhaps to emphasise I enjoyed it a great deal. Sure, as I've repeatedly mentioned, it is not breaking any moulds, but it's a really solidly put together movie and well worth adding to your shortlist. Yes, um, not for the first time, possibly even for the last time in this episode, this is a solid film that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. It is solid. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck's pretty engaging in this. It's you know quite compelling. The, the characters seem quite believable, quite well drawn and rounded. What I think is unusual about it, and maybe the name honestly leads into that too, because the name suggests of a a worse starting point hmm. than there actually is. Is that it's a sporting redemption story, but there's not really a hell of a lot to redeem. Ben Affleck's card that doesn't appear to have, you know, endangered anybody, or hurt anybody, did anything really bad to anybody except himself. Yeah, uh, and there's never a point where he's like really bad he's not for instance like Nick Nolte and Warrior where he um, he's beaten his wife in the past or anything like that he'd sort of got messed up at one point in his life his wife helped to get it together horrible tragedy happens to them and he kind of falls back and in a way I kind of found that refreshing because it's not quite as cliched as it might have been otherwise it's just that this guy's a bit troubled he's not a bad person 
deserves some help, but he's got people around him who are willing to give him it, and it's it's uh, quite compelling, I guess. He's quite a, a sympathetic but real character. Yeah, yeah. It, it does a really solid job of making him feel like a, a real character. There's nothing overly ridiculous that kind of happens to him or happened in his past that would make him seem like he's a... Uh, like a, a particularly special case. I mean, obviously there's this tragedy that's happened, but it, it doesn't feel like it's something that couldn't happen to anyone on a bad day. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, like you say, it's, it's it's not as much a redemption that he did something particularly bad. It's just uh, kind of yeah, making him feel a bit better and kind of it, it does it does a kind of more interesting dive into the character. Uh, of um, you know Cunningham than you might perhaps expect from this kind of thing. It's, it, it kind of works better as a little kind of character examination uh, rather than you know specifically the kind of standard sporting underdog story that is kind of tied to. Uh, but the two kind of mesh quite well, and uh, it's a very solid and very enjoyable film to watch. Yeah, works pretty well. It's and love is quite subtle as well, and I, I, there's one point in particular where I kind of wish it had been slightly more subtle because there's not really any hint of what had had led him to this and i was always waiting for that to drop yeah yeah and then you get to the moment where his ex-wife persuades him to go to this kid's birthday party mm. and then they mention michael yeah. he's conspicuous by his absence of not having mentioned before it's like oh okay i get that and, yeah. and i quite liked it and then then they spell it out a couple of times after that and and perhaps that's necessary i'm, I'm not going to take great issue with it but i kind of like the fact that at least to begin with it was really subtle i was like yeah kind of i wish i'd leave it like that yeah yeah at least like drop the gravestone or the conversation they car like later on when he's in the hospital yeah keep that bit but i was just slightly frustrated because i thought oh i like the films like this should be a bit more subtle yeah you know it's rather <laughs> than just like highlighting it and underlining it which is not quite what it does it's but yeah, I just find it vaguely frustrating because otherwise it was being quite subtle and exactly the sort of thing that you can understand would would make people, if not begin drinking, relapse like he did. Mm, um, yeah. And yeah, it's it's quite a human film, mm. and it's it doesn't have like huge extremes or anything in it. Um, there's no you know. Nick Nolte thinking he's somehow in the cast of Moby Dick moment or anything like that when he um, falls off the wagon. So, yeah, yeah it's it's solid. Uh, it's a reminder. I mean, you and I, certainly, Scott, I'm not so sure about Craig, but we've kind of always liked Ben Affleck and have been largely baffled in our time reviewing films with why he's quite so derided by so many people so often. Yeah. <laughs> um, ben Affleck's really, I mean, he's pretty decent. He can act pretty well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's good for that. Uh, if there's anything I didn't like, um, I know it comes as no surprise to me given the character that it is, but when the the preacher that had asked him to come back then starts berating him, it's like, you sought him out, not the other way around. Yeah. Then we've got a zero tolerance policy to drink, but um, we're trying to help you by refusing to help him in any way at all. What are you talking about, you bellend? <laughs> Yeah, other than that, definitely recommend it again. And I, I don't mean to damn it with faint face. It's a really solid film. Mm. Uh, I can't. I don't think I'd ever watch this again. Very glad I watched it this one time. It's been on my list for the last year and a half, actually, to watch. Because mm-hmm. um, it sounded interesting when it came out. Yes, 100%. Uh, do not uh, regret watching it. So well worth a look. 
before we, we finish up, I'm just going to quickly mention, I did a little bit of bonus viewing for this episode because I was uncharacteristically well prepared and early in watching all the films in time for this. Uh, I watched a couple of bonus films, so more for our points of comparison. Um, I was going to very briefly mention them just because they do relate to what we watched. Was it Escape from uh, Victory? Escape to Victory or whatever it was? <laughs> Um, Escape from Victory. You know what? I, I know I saw that as a kid, and I know it's terrible. And I, one day maybe I'll watch it again. But no. Um, what what is though is a film that I think maybe worse. It's that is probably certainly possibly, and I think probably the worst sporting film I've ever seen. So you know, there's that. That that's the thing, uh, and that's because we had been watching Downhill Racer. I thought, oh, I'll watch the other incredibly well-regarded sports film starring the other half of the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid duo, <laughs> which is the George Roy Hill film Slapshot, which I'd seen once before and thought it was absolute gash. <laughs> I'd say to give it another go, and it's absolute gash. Is, is it sympathy you're looking for tonight? <laughs> well, no, no. I, I'm, I want to <laughs> just warn people off. <laughs> That's all. Uh, you had to take a double hit to do it. Yeah, um, trust and verify, I, just, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know I didn't like it, but I couldn't remember why I didn't like it. Um, Thanks for carrying out that parity check, Drew. <laughs> it is possibly the ugliest film I've ever seen. It's chauvinistic, misogynistic, casually and not so casually, horribly homophobic. It's a comedy that's not even the slightest bit funny. Um, it's xenophobic, it's pathetic, and it, yeah, it's slap shot for all that is incredibly well regarded for some reason, is the worst sporting film I've ever seen. So don't do what I did and watch it, because it's bad. Don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I also, for a point of comparison with any given Sunday, and realize I've only seen a handful of American football films, watched Friday Night Lights again, another film I remember liking when I first saw it. Uh, it starts off with the, the legend, um, this is based on um, a true story that happened in Odessa, Texas in 1989. And I got to the end and was waiting for the, the legend there that said, and it was a cool story, bro, which is basically how the whole film feels. <laughs> and the last one, because it was a very direct comparison, it was Coach Carter again, which has a lot in terms of like the redemption of a failing team in basketball rather than the coach, in this case with the way back. Coach Carter is still really great because it's Samuel L. Jackson doing lots of inspirational monologues and that doesn't get old because it's Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> so I can still recommend Coach Carter. I was going to do some extracurricular viewing if I'd had time as well. I've got a copy of Hoosiers that I've been meaning to watch for ages, which um, uh, gives us a loops back to Gene Hackman. Uh, and again, exactly, I, that was in my head too to watch for yeah. that reason, because Gene Hackman doesn't have a role to play in Downhill Racer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, it's been recommended to me, but you know, well, it's kind of turned off of Hoosiers a bit, I must say. We all know how that panned out. Yes. Yeah, never mind. Shall we round things out with a look at Schumacher then? I don't know if this was just the luck of the draw, but I suppose it's fitting that the big F1 fan amongst us should end up talking first about this documentary about the legend, the legendary German Formula 1 driver, Michael Schumacher. Unfortunately, I now think I'm precisely the worst choice among us to do so because, well, I know most of this already. 
Produced with the blessing and cooperation of his family, who have been exceptionally private and reserved since the former driver suffered a traumatic brain injury while skiing in December 2013, Hans Bruno Kammerton's Vanessa Nooker and Michael Vecht's documentary attempts to create a portrait of a quiet, dedicated family man who also happened to be one of, and arguably the, most skilled and committed practitioners that this sport has ever seen. Not to dissimilar in style and tone to Asif Kapadia's Senna documentary, the film begins with Schumacher's astonishing F1 debut in Belgium in 1991, then hops back to the driver's modest beginnings racing on the go-kart circuit managed by his parents, and thereafter follows a largely linear course through his career. His first two world championships with Benetton, his rivalries with Damon Hill and Mika Hakkinen, his move to Ferrari, and the cementing of his status as a god to Italian motorsport fans. All this is done with a mix of archive footage and contemporary interviews with his family, his managers and his fellow competitors. All pretty standard stuff in that regard, of course. I enjoyed Schumacher, as much as it left me rather sad given the great man's condition following that tragic skiing accident, a now scarcely believable eight years ago. But for me, there's not a lot new here. And while I said that much of this wasn't new to me, I did appreciate the insights into his personality away from the track, which helped to paint a better, fuller picture of him as a person, not just a sports person. Similarly, the unknown to me, or at least unremembered by me, stories of him driving less than stellar quality go-karts with used tyres and still beating his competitors, proved a compelling foundation to his work in helping to restore Ferrari to greatness with his ability to deliver results he had no business being able to deliver with the tools he had at his disposal when he first arrived there. It's all reasonably even-handed, if not exactly warts and all, not shying away from some of Schumacher's less salubrious on-track moments, and features honest appraisals from the likes of Ross Braun, Michael Schumacher's technical director for a large part of his F1 career. What it lacks, for me, is some emphasis on quite what made him so exceptional, like his superhuman ability to consistently drive a huge number of qualifying level laps in a race, or his impact on the drivers that followed him, Schumacher having been notable for an intense training and fitness regime that was unlike anything the sport had seen before. Before I finish and find out what the two people who I presume don't already know of this thought of the film, I will mention one area where my familiarity is actually helpful to me, and a drawback to others. That's the drawback that they don't have, it, not that my familiarity is a drawback, let's be clear. Um, and that's knowing whose opinions are worth lending weight to. Of all of the terrible and stupid sports commentators I've had to suffer over the years, and let's be scrupulously fair here, it's nearly all of them. <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> None may be worse than James Allen, a part of ITV's roundly derided coverage when they had the rights to the sport in the UK and who makes a number of contributions to this documentary. The man is an absolute gimboid. So <laughs> calibrate yourself appropriately. So I thought you were going to say Murray Walker. <laughs> no. no. See, by the time Murray Walker finished, he was doing my head in. But so in retrospect, he's at the very worst, the least of many evils. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like in retrospect, while it was annoying me, he was getting things wrong. It's clear now that Murray Walker was just, he got sort of so caught up in it, sort of his enthusiasm got away from him 
Yeah. Whereas every other sports commentator is largely just a moron who's a completely oblivious to anything they're seeing or hearing. They're, just, they're so ignorant. <laughs> Murray, and Murray, I feel he was different. Murray Walker is still responsible for, I think, my favourite. Uh, sports commentator comment of all time which was a crucially here emphasis on the word could you they're so close you could get a cigarette paper between them <laughs> <laughs> oh there's so many good Maryisms um but no it's it's James Allen because Murray Walker was at least enthusiastic James Allen was a moron bless old Murray <laughs> I, I'll let me just cut to the chase. I haven't actually watched Schumacher. I was I'm never a great fan. I, I went through a, a fairly intense F1 period when I was younger. Never a never a fan of Schumacher. Well, I tell you what I'll say about Schumacher. Schumacher's no Senna, and you can you can take that on whichever level you like. Whether you're talking about yes. the man or the documentary. <laughs> yes, well, the, the film's worse, but the man was considerably better, so we'll do that and then fight afterwards, yes? <laughs> Schumacher got what he deserved. No, uh, tragic set of circumstances. Uh, at some point, I'll get around to watching this, but yeah, I haven't, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I like this a lot because I... I I kind of watched F1 at this particular era when Schumacher was in ascendancy, or, or or at least around. I say I watched it. It'd be more appropriate to say my dad watched it, and uh, because my dad had the there. remote control, yeah. um, I, <laughs> I, I osmosis. Yeah, so th- this is probably the only era of F1 that I have any familiarity with at all, and so it was nice to get a bit more of a window into uh, Schumacher because. Obviously, I have no interest in any of the characters involved in it at all, really. So I didn't really know anything that was here. So my recollections of Schumacher was that he was the German robot that crashed into his uh, championship contenders uh, very deliberately. And so it was nice to actually get a bit more context about the man and what he achieved and his family um, and actually see him acting like a human being, uh, which a lot of the time, if you're just watching F1 coverage, you might not have got. You may have got a bit more of the uh, kind of more sterile... Um, stereotypical Germanic <laughs> aspects of, of his character, uh, whereas uh, this really went into a bit much better detail about um, the man himself, which is very appreciated. Um, the other obvious question mark was what exactly happened to Schumacher after his accident, and obviously that's been kept up very quiet, and it's tempting to get a lot of conspiracy theories out of that, but of course... This film makes it very clear that it's just that he has a very loving family that wants to protect him. And, uh, mm. yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's like, obviously, the simplest explanation is indeed the truth. He is not uh, actually being replaced by a robot or anything like that. Um, he's currently being <laughs> oh, <laughs> He's not Bob Holness. He's not the Queen Mother. He doesn't need his batteries replaced. <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, not really knowing anything about um, Schumacher, um, this is a, a pretty effective documentary. Uh, it certainly gave me a greater appreciation for the man and his achievements and um, everything that was going on in F1 at the time. So, yeah, it's pretty successful for me. Um Probably not one, as as you mentioned, Drew, really for the true F1 fans who probably know almost all of this already. They'll have seen the um, the interviews where he he was, uh, well, uh, coming across with some of his feelings about the uh, Senna crash and things like that. They've probably already seen that kind of stuff, so they won't need that kind of um, aspects of his character kind of delved into anymore. Mm -hmm. But for, for people like myself who didn't really do much more than watch 
<laughs> watch the uh, the races under protest when they really wanted to go and play Revenge of Shinobi instead. Um, you know, <laughs> just saying. Uh, uh, it, it, it would be a, a worthwhile watch for anyone who's who's in that uh, in that kind of uh, category. If you're we're kind of a, a, a a casual fan of the sport, but not of the characters behind it, then this would probably bring you quite a lot of um, interest into it at least. It's a solid documentary in that basis, so yeah, definitely worth taking a look at if you're if you're into that category. Yeah, yeah, um, and like you know, for big F one family, I mean, I've watched it consistently since I was probably five years old, hmm. and I watch every race. I, I love it. Uh, so I mean, th- there's clearly less there for me. Schumacher would be in a fight for favourite driver of all time for me. Certainly drove for my favourite team. So, you know, like, imagine like, I know quite a lot of this already, but even then I still found it interesting and engaging. Mm-hmm. I think it helps. I don't really want to say humanise, because I've never thought that, just, but certainly for a British audience, yeah, it may get more of it, because it, it always bothered me. Um, and it's maybe something to do with the British character in general, but I remember at the time a lot of people thought that that Schumacher was very arrogant, which I never bought. It was more just, he didn't buy into that false modesty crap that you get a lot in this country. No, 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 I'm not really that good at this. Like, he was like, what's the point of that? Who, Who's that impressing? What's the point of that? It's like, no, I know I'm good. I'm not going to deny it. But it wasn't arrogance, but I think a lot of people read it like that. So I think in this country, there would be a lot of people who um, maybe have themselves disabused of that notion and certainly see him as a much more rounded person and it's just interesting it's a, a very successful person in the sport who did a a lot of change made me did a good grammar there made a lot of changes to his sport yeah sorry my thoughts sort of petered out there <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's solid um oh god yes i knew i said solid that wasn't the last time i was going to say solid in this episode yet. it's a really solid film um now did ferrari the f1 team get bought by an energy drink company as well because um, that's my understanding that is now every F1 team is now owned by Red Bull <laughs> is that true? I think that's the case because they couldn't have the fag companies own them anymore so it's now just uh, just Red Bull oh, teams Yeah, here's the way they're not like the cigarette companies ever owned them apart from like they owned one team which is BAR which Ooh. is hmm. actually now Mercedes <laughs> ben- Benson and Regis yeah. Did Mercedes buy the fags, or did what happened there? Bussin Hornets is the, <laughs> the um, Benson Hedges uh, sponsored Jordan team did at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, no, um, this is obviously not to do with film, but so you mentioned it. Yeah, cigarette companies never owned them apart from BAR, but did sponsor them. Weirdly, Ferrari is still sponsored by Philip Morris, except it's not that. It's this Windows company, which is some sort of charitable foundation. It's somehow a way to get around that, but it, nobody knows it's anything to do with cigarettes that sees it unless you've like read into it a bit. So, like, it's all very weird. These aren't cigarettes; these are biggerettes. They're, yeah. they're entirely legally distinct. <laughs> that's when I that's when I lost interest in F one was uh, two key factors: the introduction of the downforce planks, and uh, yeah, the the crackdown on cigarette and alcohol. Uh, kind of endorsements. I'd still I miss the days of the old black and gold Johnny Walker uh, leverage and stuff. But uh, uh, see, um, when Lotus were driving before Lotus, Lotus after having been Benetton and then Renault, hmm. then became Lotus, then became Renault, and are now Alpine, which is Renault Sports Car Company, 
get Formula One ownership and naming is weird. Um, they did actually have go back to the black and red livery. Or sorry, not black, the black and gold livery for a few while, a few years while they were Lotus. It was really nice to see. Yeah, well, that's that cool. wasn't that long ago. Yeah, and it was nothing to do with Johnny Walker. And not, um, not you know, John Player. Johnny Walker's. Um, that's it. Sorry, John Player. Yeah, 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 yeah. John Player special. Yeah, yeah, specials. But, um, but no, they did. I'm, I'm confusing my cigarettes with whiskey. Yeah, which is also black and gold, but you know, it's, yeah. yeah, it was it was John Player or John Johnny John Walker. Player specials. Now, why so haven't there why haven't the um, firearm companies got involved in this? Why, why isn't there a Kalashnikov racing team? I think that would trip off the number well. <laughs> no, well, there is a team with a um, a Russian driver brings a lot of Russian sponsorship with them, so maybe it's on the cards. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess that will wrap us up for today then. Thank you very much for your attention. If you would like to get in touch with us for any of the issues raised here today or for any other reason, then you can do so at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. That is the email address um, at fudsonfilm. That's the Twitter handle or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. If that's still a thing, not sure anymore. Is it meta.com? You can say. Anyway, we will be back with uh, some more vaguely sci-fi, sporty type things in another 10 days or so. But until such time, take care of yourself and each other. I'll bid you adieu, and maybe these guys will do too. Undoubtedly. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>